Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings to all of you here at Central Campus, also those of you who are watching online, which I have a feeling is uh, a large number of you, and also those of you who are joining us from one of our regional campuses. If you and your family have had to vacate your home or have suffered damage from the flooding that has hit our city and our province, I just want to say on behalf of our church family that we have been and we will continue to pray uh, for you and your family, and we're doing all that we can in cooperation with the city and the province to help in any way possible. Uh, as you know, our church was one of five emergency sites in the city that the people were directed to for help and also for further direction, and so I want to thank our staff and also those of you who served alongside them uh, for the care that was given. Also, the hundreds of you who uh, phoned and offered not only to serve, but to provide blankets and clothing, food and lodging for people who were displaced from their homes. I celebrate the love, the generosity, the spirit of servanthood uh, of our church. I'm proud of you, and I believe that Jesus is very pleased with his bride, the church, today. Now, I've been asked by several people if my message this weekend was going to be on Noah and the flood. Well, even though that might be appropriate, we're going to continue our study on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount because, as you're going to see in a moment, uh, the passage that we're um, slated to look at next in our study through this sermon is very appropriate, very relevant to the challenging events that we Albertans have been experiencing over the last 48 hours or so. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me and join me in reading the next passage in our series here on the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus that we have just read. We ask that you would help us to understand more fully what, in fact, Jesus was saying here, that you would focus our minds. Lord, you would soften our hearts, and then you would give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now, in his sermon here Um, In Matthew 5 through to chapter 7, Jesus is giving us a picture of the character 
the attitudes and the behaviors of those people who are fully devoted to him. Those who are part of his kingdom or God's kingdom. Whether we're consciously aware of it or not, uh, all of us are citizens or subjects of a kingdom or of a society or community. We are either subjects of the kingdom of this world or subjects of the kingdom of God. And what we believe about certain things, or what we want in life, how we spend our time and our money, uh, the way that we live our lives are all reflective of the kingdom that we're devoted to. And throughout his sermon here, um, Jesus describes um, what a citizen of his kingdom looks like and lives like. And indirectly, he's really asking us as we read this and as we hear the teaching on this, he's asking us, which kingdom do you belong to? Well, in this passage that we just read together, Jesus gives further description of those who are part of his kingdom. He says, those who are part of my kingdom, first of all, invest in heavenly treasures rather than earthly treasures. Secondly, they have an eternal godly perspective rather than an earthly temporary perspective. And then thirdly, they serve God and God alone. Well, let's unpack each of these a little more. To begin with, Jesus says those who are part of God's kingdom invest in heavenly treasures rather than earthly treasures. Look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin, vermin, by the way, means bugs and lice and things like that, okay? He says where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now notice that Jesus isn't saying here it's wrong to want to lay up treasures, to have the desire to do so, or that it's wrong to make investments. No, he's simply warning us to not store them in the wrong place or to make short-sighted investments. Let's face it, we live in a material world that has many voices beckoning us to invest in any number of things. Marketing agencies will spend billions of dollars um, trying to convince us to invest their way. Many of them have a wonderful plan for our lives and for the resources that God has given to us. And one of the greatest challenges that we face in life is determining exactly what are we going to do with the time, the abilities, and the gifts and money that God has given to us. Well, here in verse 19, Jesus gives us his investment strategy, which I highly recommend you listen to far more than your personal financial planner. This is his personal investment strategy, and he starts out by telling us what not to invest in. He says, stay out of earthly treasures. Now, the term treasures is a very broad term, which includes more than money. In fact, some translations refer to money in this passage as mammon, 
and it's a broader term. Anything or anyone can be your treasure if you value it as such. It can be money and possessions, of course, but it can also be a person. It can be a position. It can be a quest for power. It can be pleasure. It can even be the approval of other people. Now, Jesus never said that any of these earthly treasures are wrong in themselves. He said they are dangerous because we might sell out to something that doesn't last. Gerald Mann says, we are being warned here not to be had by what we have. We're also being warned here not to be had by what we don't have. Let's face it, you don't need to be rich or powerful to sell out to the temporary treasures of this world. A poor person can lust after money and possessions as much as a rich person can. Hoarding stuff is sinful, but so is envy. In both cases, money has too much power in our lives. And so Jesus is not condemning or blessing being rich or poor here. His message is far deeper. He's challenging us not to allow earthly treasures to become the basis for our identity. You see, the real danger of treasuring earthly possessions is that we allow what we have or don't have to tell us who we are or what we are. That's why we get so upset when things that we treasure are taken away from us or are lost or are destroyed by a flood. Or why we struggle with being generous. And we get upset when pastors talk about money because we're being had by what we have or don't have. Money and possessions are too important to us and to our sense of identity. Now, on the other hand, that's also why we tend to resent people who we perceive to be richer than we are. Why we judge them why we feel disdain for them, why we walk past their homes and say, look at this, it's a mansion. Can't believe that people would live in a place that, you know, uh, opulent. Why we have those feelings? And that is because money is too important to us. We're being had by what we don't have. Our envy of rich people shows money matters too much to us. It has too much power over us and our sense of identity. Some of us let the amount of money we have define the level of our significance. If we have lots of money and possessions, then we're tempted to see ourselves as successful upper-class uh, people. On the other hand, if we have little money, then we're inclined to view ourselves poorly. Again, Gerald Mann asks, can you be irrespective of what you have? Do you have to have to be somebody? Some of you have lost everything that you possess in this flood. And so you can really relate to this question that's being asked. 
and that Jesus is alluding to here. But let's not limit this question just to our earthly possessions. If you lost everything, including your money and your trophies, your degrees, even those that you love and care about, could you still be somebody? In other words, what is the source of our identity? Is it God the creator? Or is it the things that he's created? As Christ followers, our identity is based on who we are in Jesus Christ. We are the children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There is no greater uh, heritage and inheritance than that. Amen? We are precious in God's sight, and our identity comes from who He says we are, not from what others say we are, not from what our culture says we are, and how our culture defines success. The reality is, this is our great sin against God, our tendency to treasure the things that He created more than God Himself. To treasure the earthly kingdom more than God's heavenly kingdom. In Romans 1.25, Paul describes it this way. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. All this to say that Jesus is warning us here not to find our identity or our meaning in life in earthly treasures. It's not wrong to have earthly treasures or to enjoy them or even to save some for a rainy day, as it were. But we are not to worship them or to hoard them. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, in the ancient world, there were primarily three sources of wealth, fine and elaborate clothes, grain and food products, and gems and gold. And Jesus says moths and lice can get at your clothes and destroy their beauty and their value. Your grain can decay or rodents can destroy it, or your gems can be stolen by thieves. But you see, Jesus could have gone on here. Don't stake your life on temporary treasures because, as we've just seen this last week, floods destroy, fires consume, investments can go bad. It's not wise, says Jesus, to invest in stuff that depreciates, that rots, that rusts, that thieves can rip off. And so he says, my counsel is that you invest minimally in earthly treasures. Instead, he says in verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus says, load up on heavenly treasure because only heavenly treasures will last for eternity. 
Any investment that you make in heavenly treasures is absolutely risk-free. It is moth-proof, it is rust-proof, it's burglar-proof, fire-proof, and flood-proof. Jesus says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So let me be practical for a moment and ask, well, how do I store up heavenly treasures? Well, the answer is to daily surrender yourself to the Lord and to invite the Holy Spirit to live the life of Jesus through you, the life that Jesus describes so well here in his Sermon on the Mount. Again, we will never live the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount perfectly in our lives. But when we choose the pathway of humility, holiness, and meekness, Jesus says we will not only be blessed in this life, but we're going to be storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven. When we hunger and thirst for God and for righteousness, when we're merciful to others and choose to be peacemakers rather than troublemakers, we will not only be blessed in this life, but we're going to be storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven. When we are salt and light for Jesus' sake, when we love and forgive and pray for those who have hurt us rather than harboring bitterness and seeking revenge, we will not only be blessed in this life, but we are storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven. When we give sacrificially to the needy or to those suffering injustice, when we pray for someone in need or pray for someone who needs the Lord, when we fast, when we forsake food and other pleasures in order to pray more intensely for someone or a burden that God has placed on our lives, not only will we be blessed in this life, but we are storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus is saying, trust me in this. One day, you're going to be so glad you did. You know, all of this kind of reminds me of the man whose wife owned a cat, which he despised. By the way, not talking about me, okay? Can relate to this man, but it's not me. All right. She loved that cat with a passion. Daily she combed it, she washed it, she talked to it, she fed it, she pampered it. He, on the other hand, was allergic to cat hair, hated the litter box, couldn't stand the cat next to him at the dinner table, was bugged by the scratch marks all over the furniture, and couldn't sleep at night for the cat's incessant purring. Well, one evening he'd finally had enough. So while his wife slept, he took the cat and gave it to a friend who was visiting from Russia who just happened to love cats and swore him to secrecy, paid him handsomely to take the cat back with him to Russia. Well, the next day, his wife was shattered with grief when she discovered that the cat of her life was missing. And to show his husbandly concern, he posted a $5,000 reward for its safe return. One of his friends says, $5,000? Have you lost your mind? No cat is worth that. 
I mean, what are you going to do if someone shows up with the cat? The husband grinned and said, when you know what I know, you can afford to take the risk. (laughs) Friends, it's only a joke. But there is a truth that underlies it. Knowing what he knows, the Christian can afford to risk storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus says... Jesus says those who are part of his kingdom invest in heavenly treasures rather than earthly treasures. Furthermore, Jesus says those who are part of his kingdom have an eternal perspective, a godly perspective rather than a temporary perspective. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now Jesus is using using our physical vision here as a metaphor of spiritual vision. He's saying what you treasure in life and how you live your life depends in large part on how clearly you see life through God's eyes, through spiritual eyes, or from God's perspective, rather than from your own perspective. If you are unable to see that your real eternal home is actually heaven itself, and instead you have the perspective that life as we know it here on earth is all that there is, well then your values and your investments and your priorities will naturally focus on the temporary, on the here and now, and the concerns of life. I mean, if you believe that this life is all that there is, you know, that you, when you die, you're, you're, you're done, it's over, kaput. If you believe that, then you'll have little reason to put the needs of others ahead of yourself. You're going to find yourself asking every once in a while, why should I deny myself any possessions or things for the sake of other people? Christ's followers have an entirely different perspective. Randy Alcorn says that we see this life as the preface, not the book. We see this life as the preliminaries, not the main event. We see it as the tune-up, not the concert. Eternity is coming. Life is a hundred years. Eternity is a gazillion years. The main event is still coming. And because we see differently, we live differently. We invest differently. We have different values and priorities, and we do so without apology or regret. Because it makes perfect sense if you see this life from God's perspective or through his eyes. And of course, that's a big if. You know, last year, my wife Gwen and I were on our sabbatical, and we spent about five weeks in Europe and in the Mediterranean. Now, we didn't take along all of our clothes. 
We didn't take all our furniture with us. We didn't sell our home and our vehicles and move all of our assets to a European bank. And when we got there, we didn't buy a home and a car and set up shop. If we had, you would have concluded that we're not visiting Europe. We're moving there permanently. If we had taken all of our earthly belongings to Europe for a five-week trip, you would have seriously been concerned about our sanity. No, all we took was a suitcase. Oh, my wife had five or six, but anyways, no. No, 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 that's not true. No, that's not true. We each had a suitcase. We took along enough money to cover our anticipated expenses while we were there because we knew we were just spending a relatively short time in that part of the world and that our real home was back in Calgary. Well, you see, folks, that is an illustration of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if your permanent home, if you believe, let me put it this way. Jesus is saying, if you believe me that your permanent home is actually in heaven and that you're going to spend forever there, you're going to spend a gazillion years there as opposed to only, at best, a hundred years here, it makes sense, doesn't it? To store all of your treasures or most of your treasures over there rather than here? The question is, do we believe Jesus? Do we believe what he's saying here? Now, if we don't, or if we say we do but live like we don't, what does that say about our relationship with Jesus? I'm talking to Christians here. What does that say about our relationship with Jesus? What does it say about where we stand with him? If we trust him for our salvation, but we refuse to trust him and believe him in terms of what he's saying right here. Now, many Christians, of course, do believe Jesus and trust what he's saying here. The challenge that we face is living and working next to people who think we're nuts investing our lives and resources in heavenly treasures rather than earthly treasures. On top of that is we see others stockpiling and increasingly increasing treasures here on earth around us, living the good life, we're tempted to lose our focus and our resolve and actually to begin living just like everybody else is. And let's face it, many Christians do just that. And Jesus is saying here through this illustration that the key to avoid lapsing back into greed and back into materialism and the temporary is to have a singular focus. Keeping our vision, keeping our eye on Jesus and on his eternal kingdom where that, in which things will not rot or rust or cease to exist. The Apostle Paul 
said it this way. He said, for me to live is Christ. He said, this one thing I do, he had a singular focus. Having a singular focus on God's perspective will involve reminding yourself often how you came to notice that the possessions and pleasures that you sought after, they wore out in time. They lost their sheen. How you enjoyed them for a while, but over time you lost interest in it. And how your hunger to always have more, bigger, better, just never seemed to go away. How the more money you had in the bank, the more you worried and fretted about how to invest it and what to do with it. He's saying, remind yourself often of the day that you stood at the deathbed of someone who had everything in the world except God. And how you realized in that moment that immortality is not found in the building of an empire or having your name etched on the, on the trophy or on a building or your picture on the cover of a national magazine because empires fall and buildings collapse and the famous are eventually forgotten. Remind yourself of the day that you watched on television the shooting of 20 children in Newtown, Connecticut, and you realize for the first time as you watch that horror that true safety and security cannot be found on this planet. It can only be found ultimately in God. Church, your vision of reality, your perspective will affect everything in your life. Whatever you focus on, and give your attention to will ultimately get you. Jesus says those who are part of God's kingdom, they keep their vision clear. They have an eternal, godly perspective rather than a temporary one. Thirdly, those who are part of God's kingdom serve God and God alone. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says the foundational issue at stake here is you have to decide who you're going to trust in this life. We all serve some sort of God, even if that God is ourselves. But Jesus says you can only serve one God at a time. Notice Jesus does not say you must not serve two masters. He says you cannot serve two masters. It's impossible to serve both. We have to make a choice. And the reason for that is this. The word serve in the Greek means to be a slave, while the word for master denotes absolute ownership. Therefore, another way this verse could be translated is no man can be the slave of two masters. 
That's why you can't serve two masters at the same time because each master is requiring everything from you. He's requiring all of you. Jesus says that our hearts have room for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing vision and devotion. If God is the undisputed master of our lives, then we will not sometimes say, well, I will do what God calls me to do today. And then other times say, "Ah, today I'm going to do what I want to do. The Christian has no time off from being a Christian. She lives her life fully aware that she is always in the presence of God. We cannot pursue the things of God and the things of the world at the same time. Now you ask why? For the same reason that a woman cannot have two husbands or a man have two wives. When we carry on a love affair with the world, we are committing spiritual adultery. God will not be a half-husband. He is not pleased if you call him Savior and yet refuse to follow him as Lord. There is nothing so insulting to him than to take his name upon us and yet to live a life that clearly demonstrates that we are serving and we're giving our life over to another God. William Barclay has said this, Surely there is no better description of a man's God than to say that his God is the power in whom he trusts. And when a man puts his trust in material things, then material things have become not his support, but his God. What Jesus is saying here to his followers is, That his value system and the value system of this world are in direct opposition to one another. And that is why you cannot serve both God and money or God and mammon. And that means those of us who call ourselves Christians are going to have to make a hard choice between living for the things of this world or for the pleasure and the glory of God. A hard choice is going to have to be made, and not just once, but probably every day of our lives. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, if you want to know where your heart is really at, if you want to know what kingdom your heart is really sold out to, look at what you really treasure. Look at where your time's going. Look at where your money's going. Look at what you're doing with your possessions. He's saying your heart will follow your investments. It will follow your money and your time. If you treasure, for example, receiving the approval of others or being seen as significant in the eyes of others, then your money and your time will be prone to go in that direction. It will go toward living 
in a certain neighborhood. It will go toward being able to drive a certain vehicle. It will go toward eating in certain places. It will go toward dressing a certain way. If you treasure security and being in control of your life, then your money will be prone to go there. Tim Keller tells of two young women who became Christ's followers while they were attending university. And they were were affected uh, greatly. Uh, Their decision was affected greatly by one of their professors who happened to be uh, a follower of Christ. Well, they went back to their parents and they said, you know, we become Christians and we want to be missionaries. And each of their parents said essentially the same thing. They said, now, dear... You've had a religious experience. How wonderful. But you need some security. And so before you go off and have your missionary experience, which is fine, we want you to have a master's degree. We want you to have taken a job or two so you've gotten your career off the ground. And we want you to have some money in the bank for some security. Well, the women went back to the university. They went and talked to this particular professor, told him what their parents had said, and said, what would you say about that? And the professor said, here's what I would say to your parents. Tell them we're on a little ball of rock spinning through space. It's called Earth. And who knows if we're going to run into something. But even if we don't, At the end of your life, a trap door will open up underneath you and you will fall off the little ball of rock. And underneath will be either the everlasting arms of God or nothing at all. And you think that a master's degree is going to give you some security? You may think money can give you security, but it won't stop death. It can't stop tragedy or broken relationships. Jesus says your heart will follow your investments. If most of your money is invested in the Ford Motor Company stock, your heart will be passionately concerned about Ford Motor Company. On the other hand, if you invest your money in the mission that God has called us to, to help the poor, to confront injustice and introduce people to Jesus and make disciples, then your heart and your life is going to be passionately devoted to that. Your heart follows your time and your money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how can we know if we're worshiping God or some other idol, mammon? Well, here are some questions that will serve as a treasure test to help us identify idols in our lives. I want to give Daryl Johnson credit for a couple of these questions. Question number one. What is the source of your greatest joy and delight? 
You know, there are many things that we delight in this life, like our loved ones, our homes, our toys, and there's nothing wrong with this. If you want to know if any of these is a potential idol, ask yourself, am I holding, am I holding it with an open hand? Which means, am I prepared to let it go? Am I prepared to give it away if God asks me to? Am I prepared to lose it? If I'm not, then this may be an idol in my life. Question number two. What are you anxious about? You know, interestingly, in the next passage of Scripture, if you just keep reading, Jesus talks about this here in Matthew 6. He talks about the issue of worry. What is causing you the most anxiety these days? What fears are you struggling with? Trace your anxiety and fear to its source, and you will find that there may be an idol at the root of it. Thirdly, where do you resist obeying God's word? We know that the scriptures are true, but do you find that there are passages in the scripture that you avoid or that you just kind of gloss over? You don't really meditate on or think about or what it means to you or what God's saying to you? Are there certain subjects that we find in the scriptures, certain themes that you don't want to talk to other people about, that you hate hearing sermons about because they threaten your lifestyle or they threaten your financial security or just your plans for the future and you just don't want to go there? If that is true, then if you dig down a little bit, you may find an idol that's undergirding that. All of these questions, if we have the courage to actually ask them and to pursue them, have the potential of exposing idols in our lives. And if we find that there are some idols that we're worshiping, we have a decision to make. Jesus would ask us, who will you serve? God or mammon? I'll close with this. Gwen and I, as some of you know, lived in the Chicago area for over five years while I was working on um, my postgraduate degrees, and that was just before we came to Center Street. I'll never forget a pastor in that city and tell me about the giving pattern of a certain couple in his church. Though you would have never have known it by the way that they dressed, the car they drove, or even the house they lived in, their combined annual income was well over a half million dollars a year. And she was a surgeon who did nothing but emergency surgery at a Chicago hospital, and he was a university professor. Her salary was many times greater than his, and every year they gave her entire net income and over 10% of his salary to the Lord's work. Then every seven years, they would take half a year or more uh, away from their work, and they would serve in their specialties in a foreign country 
to help the needy there, paying for their own support. Now, as the pastor was sharing this, he noticed this look of shock on my face. And he began to smile, and he said to me, he says, I know, I know. He says, I was shocked at first too. But then he says, I guess it all comes down, to, though, to whether or not you're going to take Jesus at his word here in Matthew 6. He said, this couple has told me that they and their family can live comfortably on less than 20% of their income. And rather than invest here on earth, they've decided to transfer it to their heavenly account, to send it on ahead, where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves break in and steal. And you know, the pastor was right. If we believe Jesus here, then the lifestyle decisions and the investment decisions of this couple should be seen not only as amazingly wise, but as totally normal for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, what is it that motivates a couple with over $600,000 a year income to give most of it away? What is it that prompted R.B. Letourneau, manufacturer of the large earth-moving machines that we still see around these days, to invest over 90% of his wealth into God's kingdom? What is it that motivated Stanley Tam to legally, on paper, make God the owner of his multinational, multi-million dollar corporation and give most of the proceeds to advance the cause of Jesus Christ? What is it that motivates Christians in this church and around the world to deliberately live more simply so that they can give more sacrificially of their time, of their abilities and their money to further the kingdom of God? I'll tell you what motivates people to do this. In the words of C.T. Studd, that only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus is going to last. Surely if we believe this, we can join the songwriter in singing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be a king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Friends, moments after we die, we will understand what is most important. We will see with the clarity of eternity. Moments after we die, we will begin to taste the fruit 
of our faithfulness. Heaven's going to be full of people who will cheer when you get there. And they'll say, hey, look who's here. Not from shock. <laughs> but from gratitude and joy. People will walk up to you and they will say, you know, I just want to say thanks for giving to the Lord. That class that you taught, that flat that you fixed, the talk that you gave, the kindness you show, the missionary you supported, the pastor you supported, the prayers that you prayed, God used to change my life, not only on earth, but for eternity. What a day of rejoicing that will be. But in the meantime, we have a major decision to make. We can use our affluence to impress others in this life. Or we can use our affluence to influence others for eternity. And in so doing, store up treasures in heaven and more importantly, hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. May what is most important, may what will be most important to us then be most important to us now. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for Jesus, the living word, and also for your written word, and especially the passage that we looked at today. It's true we can't serve two masters, just like we can't go in two directions at the same time. So Lord, we ask that you would forgive us where we've invested far too, many, too much of our lives and our resources in the temporary rather than the eternal. And I pray, Lord, as we leave here today, we will leave with a new resolve to give our lives and to give our resources to that which is really going to matter in the end. I pray that we'll be able to do so cheerfully, even when others around us might think we've lost our sanity. Lord, give us the faith to believe the truth of, of what you have taught here, that we have only one life, and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.